All right. I'm going to walk through a bunch of stuff today. Per the usual, I'm the type of person that like over prepares. So my notes for this talk were originally like 500 pages and I just had to edit and, and delete everything. And so I'm not going to get to talk about everything I want to talk about today, but that's very good news for you. Otherwise, we'd be here for a long time, uh, past lunch or something crazy like that. Here's what we're talking about today. I'm going to give the basic outline of our talk. I want to define and kind of walk through what this means in dwelling of the Spirit. I'm going to define our terms for us uh, and just walk through some scriptures that this doctrine uh, is founded on. And then I'm going to specifically examine some other terms that are kind of under the umbrella of indwelling of the Spirit. And whenever this conversation comes up about the indwelling of the Spirit, these other conversations that get started, like that of the baptism of the Spirit or the filling of the Spirit. What do those terms mean? What do they not mean? I'm going to clarify some stuff. And then finally, I'm going to examine the implications of the doctrine of the indwelling of the Spirit. So I haven't defined it yet, so you're like, what does that mean? But we'll, we'll talk about what flows out from this doctrine, and hopefully that's going to be really encouraging. So I want to kind of walk through some technical stuff, and we'll be reading a ton of scripture. If you see your notes, it's just a bunch of scriptures. Uh, we're just going to walk through those, and then we'll get to some encouraging applicational implications at the very end. Sound good? Oh, yes. Everybody's excited. Okay. So here's my definition. I think it's here on your notes. By the way, we found a weird loophole by which we could up, we can put our notes, upload our notes onto our website. We've never been able to do that. On, for theological equipping, these notes that are here in the room, we've never been able to do that. But found a loophole, so we're going to start doing that. Okay? So these notes, if you send this link to somebody else on our website, you'll see a little drop down that says downloads, and you can be able to actually download these notes. Okay? For your own reference, and you can listen again. Our definition of the indwelling of spirit is that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is one of the gifts of salvation by which God's presence and the person of the Spirit indwells the church corporately and Christians individually to empower, sanctify, and unify believers to the glory of the triune God. Now, I did something there that is breaking the cardinal rule of definitions. I used both of my terms that I'm supposed to be defining within my own definition, okay? You can't do that. That doesn't work. So I want to define what the Spirit is, and I want to define what indwelling is. We did a whole lesson on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit, back in November 19th of 2017, so last year. Uh, you can go listen to that on our website. You can go check that out on iTunes. I don't have time to kind of go through that entire talk because it was just as long as this one's going to be, all dedicated to the Holy Spirit. But in brief summary, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, the third person of the Trinity, he's fully God, not a third of God, because God is a Trinity. Three persons, one God, and so he's God. The Spirit is God, and he is a person. Notice he's a person. He's not a force. He's not like Star Wars, okay? The, the Spirit is a person, and he tends to give life. He regenerates the hearts of men to believe in Christ. He gives evidence of the presence of God. So that's who the Holy Spirit is. Now, indwelling, this is a word that we don't use a lot. I've, I don't hear this word much outside of theological conversations. You can see that it's two words mashed up together, in and dwelling. In meaning in. <laughs> so again, I broke that rule of, def of defining. And then dwelling is the verb form of a noun meaning a dwelling place, like a, a house or something like this. And in Greek, here in the New Testament, whenever this word is used, indwelling, it's pretty much the same thing. It's this preposition in, and the, the verb form of the noun, this may sound real technical, oikos, which just means house, to house. So the verb form would be to house with somebody, to live with somebody. And so this is actually a pretty good translation of the word, though we don't use it much. Uh, so to give an example of what indwelling means, it, it, it's this, uh, this personal presence of someone living in a house with you. So for example, I have a brand new, we have a, a one-month-old at our house, and that has completely changed everything about our house, okay? It's very obvious to us that she now lives in our house versus in my wife's womb because she kind of calls the shots, she cries when she wants something, and everything has changed. We're very aware of this personal relationship that exists because she's living in our house. If all of a sudden tomorrow I put my daughter in your house to live for the night, you would be well aware of the presence of her dwelling in your abode, okay? So that's what indwelling communicates, living with, living inside of. 
So uh, the spirit indwells the believer, the believer, and this dwelling is personal and noticeable. Uh, let me give you an example of this in action, Romans 8, 9 through 11. And again, these scriptures are gonna be all over your notes. <laughs> Uh, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. It says three times. The Spirit dwells in you. The Spirit dwells in you. And that is just showing you that uh, I'm just trying to demonstrate that we're getting this out of the Bible. <laughs> the Spirit dwells in you. Who does it dwell in? Who does he, the Spirit, dwell in? He dwells in all believers, those who have been bought with the price of Christ, those who are in Christ. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, you have this indwelling of the Spirit. So I want to show briefly where the indwelling of the Spirit exists in all of these gifts, these gracious gifts of salvation. So this is kind of what we've been covering this semester. Oh, and these are spoilers for next semester, so don't look at those. Uh, so we're foreknown, we're predestined, we're called with a gospel call, and then regenerated. This kind of review, uh, Jeff kind of went through this last week as well. Here's where the indwelling of the Spirit takes place, at regeneration. And then all of these are founded upon this foundation of the indwelling of the Spirit. There is no uh, justification, adoption, uniting with Christ, sanctification, glorification, apart from indwelling of the Spirit. Does that make sense? So that's where it kind of lands in all of this. And so these are all outworkings of indwelling. But the doctrine of the indwelling of the Spirit just means that everything that we've received in this order of salvation is uh, built upon the same foundation of the indwelling of the Spirit. I just say all of this to say this is very important. This is not a, a subject that's talked about a lot in the church. What you're gonna hear a lot in, in churches is Christ died for your sins, believe in him and you're forgiven. Yes and amen, that's very important. But there's also something at work here in your belief, in your justification in Christ, which includes being indwelt by the Spirit and that's extremely valuable. Okay, the question I want to ask is why? Why indwelling of the Spirit? What it sounds like to me is I, I asked a friend to borrow their car and they go, sure, you can have my car and I bought you a Lamborghini. I'm like, oh, that was, oh, thank you, but that was, I didn't ask for that. That seems a little above and beyond and that's kind of what the indwelling of the Spirit sounds like, at least to me. I say, I'm in need of forgiveness, I'm in need of a savior, and, I, and I'm, I say that by the power of the Spirit, and God not only justifies me, but then he continues to lavish these gifts, which include God's Spirit dwelling within me. It seems like overkill. And so I think if we look at it through a proper lens, what we have to do is kind of adjust our lens. When we just look at this individual personal salvation, it tends to make no sense that we'd be indwelt by the Spirit. But if we have the lens of the entire testimony, the entire narrative of scripture, it makes a lot more sense. All that to say, we need to do a brief summary of the entire Bible. I'm just kidding. We'll do a brief summary of the entire Old Testament, okay? So we're gonna read through some scriptures and it's gonna be fun. But just know this is the, this is the banner over which everything I'm about to say exists. Mankind was created to dwell in the presence of God. Mankind was created to dwell in the presence of God. So in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. He, he dwells, his abode is in heaven. I love that word for some reason, abode, because no one uses it and it makes me think of an adobe house. <clears throat> God's abode is in the heavens, his little clay house up there. I'm just kidding, don't think of it that way. But yet we see God specifically walking in the Garden of Eden. We see his presence there in the Garden of the Eden. It's so much so that when man sins, they're trying to hide from God's presence by, by wearing fig leaves, which is hilarious to me. Adam and Eve sin, and they rebel against the kingdom of God. And mankind, therefore, is cursed and cast out of the garden, cast away from where the presence of God has, has, has dwelt with man. They're cast out of the garden. Sin separates the dwelling place of man from the dwelling place of God. And in fact, the wages of sin 
is death precisely as a result of being separated from the author of life. When your communion is, when you're detached somewhat from the one who authors and gives life, that being the spirit specifically, you end up dying. Does that make sense? So we see this, this separation from mankind and our creator. We die and we're separated from our creator by sin. But then we see something really peculiar throughout the Old Testament. God in his mercy continues to deal with, condescend, uh, graciously give mankind access to his presence. Two glaring examples in the Old Testament being the tabernacle and the temple. The tabernacle and the temple. God graciously gives mankind access to himself, access to his presence, and we see in the Old Testament, especially among the people of Israel, that God's presence is something extremely valuable. God's presence is evidenced by God's spirit, and, and God's spirit gives life, and it's extremely precious to the people of God. So we see God condescending. He says, I don't dwell in tents made by man, but I certainly meet with mankind there. And so that's what we see, God condescending to, to, to be with mankind, give access to his presence. Exodus 33, 14 through 16, we just see how valuable the presence of God is to Moses. And he said, God saying, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. He's saying, as you go into the promised land, I'm gonna go with you and I will give you rest. Listen to what Moses says. Moses said to God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? So notice there's something extremely valuable about the presence of God, something very unique. God doesn't give access to his presence to all people. His presence is accessed in the tabernacle and eventually the temple when that's built. And so Moses says, please, I would rather just stay here in the wilderness than enter the promised land without your presence. God's presence is extremely valuable. And then again, Psalm 84, 10 through 11, the psalmist says, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Sorry, try to get the song out of your head. It's already singing in there. He says, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. He would rather, he would rather just be a doorkeeper, be something very low. I just, want, I just want one day in your courts over a thousand elsewhere. God's presence is extremely valuable, is extremely precious, life-giving. But also notice that the presence of God is, for lack of a better word, fleeting limited, at least from the perspective of mankind, the access is limited. Moses says, let your presence go with me, and he pleads that with God because why? Because there's a chance that it might not. God's presence might not go with Moses. And the psalmist longs to be a doorkeeper in the house of God, why? Because he knows what the thousand days elsewhere feels like. He's not, he's not living with this unlimited access to God's presence all the time. He's living in, in the wilderness. He's living among the tents of the wicked. And so he longs for this, this access to God's presence. But in the moment, in the Old Testament, the access is restricted and it's limited. So this is really important and something that I think a lot of people miss discussing this topic particularly. The work of the Spirit in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, is different from the work of the Spirit in the New Testament, in the New Covenant. The work of the Spirit in the Old Testament is different from the work of the Spirit in the New Testament. So let me, this is why this little, this chart is here. Now both, let me just say, both of them, if I drew a Venn diagram, now that I think of that, that might have been more helpful, but I didn't have room, so forget that. In both, the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Spirit brings people to faith, the Spirit protects, He guides, he empowers for ministry. He sanctifies or he makes holy. And, and God is the one who distributes the spirit of God. He is poured out according to the will of God. But in the Old Testament, there are some differences. The spirit is what I'll call, for lack of a better word, I try to think of a better, cooler word, but this is all I can think of, locally oriented. If you just kneel beside your bed in your house, can you access the presence of God in Old Testament Israel? No, you can't. 
Where is the presence of God accessed? The temple or the tabernacle. It is the presence of God or the Spirit's impact on someone's life is non-permanent. Non-permanent. You can think, anyone think of an example of where someone had the Spirit upon them and then that Spirit was taken away. Saul is a great example. We see Saul, he's empowered by, for the ministry of, of being the king and yet he rebels against God's rule and reign. He refuses to obey the commands that God has given and so the Spirit is, is taken away. The spirit is non-permanent. Again, only certain people have the Spirit. People. I learned my English on AOL, and so that's, that works. Only certain people have the Spirit. Are, are servants going to have the Spirit? Are slaves going to have the Spirit? Not really, because for what purpose? Instead, we see God give the Spirit to prophets, to priests, to kings. There's a specific giving of the Spirit to those in authority, and only certain people are given the Spirit in the Old Testament. Now, I, I wish I could read through all the Old Testament scriptures, but I just don't have time. So you, you get what you get. <laughs> um, and then finally, uh, this is, I, I hesitate to say this, but we'll see what happens. Less powerful in, from the perspective of mankind, okay? The Spirit's not like, you know, needed some CrossFit and then he finally got in shape by the New Testament. That's not what I'm saying. He's not less powerful. I'm saying that the work of the Spirit among mankind is less powerful. By that I mean you don't see people walking around uh, frequently uh, healing people or casting out demons or you don't see people... Uh, <coughs> Knowing, knowing the scriptures uh, in such a way that is transformative. You see this dramatic shift, which is why there's a huge focus of it in the New Testament. So we're gonna kind of get into that in just a little bit, okay? So that's the spirit in the Old Testament. I'm gonna fill out the New Testament in just a second. This is how it is in the Old Testament, but we learn from prophets that it will not, only, it will not always be this way. We start to read in the Old Testament, especially in the, among the prophets, that it's not always gonna be this way. Again, Mankind was created to dwell in the presence of God and all of these things are, 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 are temporary, temporary. So for instance, in uh, Numbers eleven twenty nine, Moses says, would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. He longs for this day. Oh gosh, that, that all people would have the spirit of God on them. Joel two twenty eight through 29, this is, this is a one that comes up a lot. It shall come to pass afterward, afterward meaning after the Lord is in their midst, okay? I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. So on everybody. So not only certain people, everybody from, from, from the greatest and to the least, to the male and female servants. Isaiah 32, 14 through 18. For the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted, the hill and the watchtower will become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. What on earth does that mean? That's really weird. <clears throat> Everything is wilderness and not as it should be, okay? He's saying the city's deserted, the, uh, the watchtower and the hill, these places of safety are, are ruled by wild animals, okay? So everything's overgrown and it's yucky. It's not as it should be. Until, what? The spirit is poured upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field. The fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then justice will, what in the wilderness? Dwell. Justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace. The result of righteousness, quietness, and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. <clears throat> so these prophets see a day that's coming. Everything's not as it should be. We have this, we have this access to the Spirit, but mankind was meant to, to dwell in the presence of God. And we don't really necessarily have that at the moment, but there's coming a day where, where, where something will dramatically shift. Finally, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. 
Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. That's a nice little jab from God. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. This is what the kingdom of God looks like as it's reestablished. This coming day includes this, this new covenant where the Spirit is poured out on all people. And what Jeremiah is trying to get to the point of is that there is this day coming where currently right now there's only certain people that have the Spirit, only certain people are, uh, have this type of access to God, only certain people really can know the law so much, but one day will come where everyone that is of the people of God will have the Spirit and they will know God. There won't be such thing as an unbelieving Christian. Everyone who is a Christian, everyone who is the people of God will believe in God. You won't have to tell other Christians, know God, because they'll already know him. Everyone that's under this new covenant will enter through the faithfulness of Christ. I could go on and on and on. <clears throat> but that kind of gives our Old Testament view of life and the work of the Spirit among the people of God. So when we open up to the pages of the New Testament, these prophets are saying, look forward to this day. This day is coming. This day is coming. We open up our New Testament. What do we find? We see John the Baptist speaking in Matthew 3.11. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Mark 1, 14 through 15, <clears throat> Jesus, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, meaning all of the stuff that the prophets have been pointing forward to is fulfilled today. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This reestablishment of the kingdom is coming as the prophets told. Matthew 12, 28, uh, here the, the Pharisees are claiming that Jesus is casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. Uh, or the devil, and so Jesus responds. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so th all that to say, the coming of the kingdom looks like this empowering of the Spirit. The coming of the kingdom includes this dramatic shift in the work of the Spirit. All of these texts, that's all I'm trying to convince you of, <laughs> all I'm trying to demonstrate. And so that's why in Acts 1, 4 through 5, says, while staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. You'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Jeremiah 31, 33. Uh, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. So remember, that's what Jeremiah 31, 33 says. Listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians 3.3. 3. You show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, written not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. The spirit is what Jeremiah is talking about. The spirit is his law being written on your heart. John 7.38-39. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. It's very important. Let me read that again. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This he said about the Spirit, whom those who already believed in Christ were to receive, had not yet received. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. He's pointing to this dramatic shift in the work of the Spirit. The Spirit will, it'll be different after Jesus' glorification. So there's a lot of text. We'll sum it up in just a second. Don't worry. Everybody's like, he's just going to read Scripture the whole time. Maybe. Acts 2, 1 through 4. So when the day of Pentecost arrived, by the way, Pentecost is the, the Feast of Weeks, also called the Feast of the First Fruits, which is interesting considering the, the context. 
<clears throat> they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire, baptized with the Spirit and fire, appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Slow down. I'm not talking about tongues today. Okay? Everybody's like, yes, finally. No, we're not going to do that today. We're going to do that uh, when we talk about ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. Uh, we'll talk about all the spiritual gifts then. We're not talking about that today. We're talking about the foundation upon all of those gifts are built. Okay? So don't get too excited. Uh, but we see that Jesus makes this promise. Wait in Jerusalem for me, and I'll send the promise of the Father, the promise that all of these prophets have talked about and that he, Jesus himself talked about. <clears throat> and so they wait in Pentecost, or they wait in Jerusalem at the Feast of Pentecost, and we see the Spirit come upon them, that they are, they are filled with the Spirit. In Acts 2, 32 through 33, this Jesus God raised up, and of, of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. That's Peter talking about all these people are like, well, these guys must be drunk or something. And Peter goes, no, 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 no. this is the promise that Jesus uh, explicitly told us was coming. And so the, the New Testament makes it very explicit that what's happening here is this shift from the Old Testament work of the Spirit to the New Testament work of the Spirit. When you talk about the indwelling of the Spirit with many people, that is often missed. And so we start reading our, our current interpretation of how the Spirit works onto the Old Testament. When you do that, you're gonna get in a lot of trouble. It'll be very confusing. You're gonna read about Saul losing the Spirit, and you're gonna say, I guess that means I can lose the Spirit. No, you have to first recognize that these two things are different, under different covenants. It says, a new covenant I make, and it's not like the old covenant. It's a new covenant. So, how does the Spirit work specifically in the New Testament? Be careful with this word. Everybody, just calm down. Among the people of God, the Spirit is given universally. If you are of the people of God, if you are sanctified by Christ, if you are all of these things, foreknown, predestined, called, regenerated, justified, adopted, united with Christ, sanctified, glorified, you have the Spirit. It's universal, whether you're a servant or a king. It's universally given. It's also the Spirit of God. I keep saying it. I'm trying to say the covenant, but I make it sound like I'm talking about Spirit as if he's an it. Uh, whoa, permanent. Permanent. I don't even know if that's how you spell it. Spell check, Jeff? Amen. I know. I'm like, permanent. Okay, great. Um, the Spirit of God is, is, is permanent. There's no, there's no way that you're going to lose the Spirit's indwelling in your life. There's no risk of that. If you are the people of God, if you indeed have been regenerated, if you are indeed a Christian, you have the Spirit and you never lose that. You never lose that. Uh, what did I say? Yeah. So, I, I don't want to, I, I have some time that I need to make up because I'm already going too long. Uh, I'll just say that the Spirit of God's work among us is more powerful than in the Old Testament. <clears throat> By that I mean you see Jesus, what happens when Jesus shows up on the scene? John the Baptist says, look, the, the Lamb of God who, who takes away the sins of the world, Jesus is baptized, it says the Spirit descends upon him like a dove, and then Jesus immediately starts doing all of these crazy things healing people's blindness. He's making the lame walk. He's doing all of these crazy things. And they're not just magic tricks. And when I talk about this, I'm not saying all believers today should be healing their blind neighbor or something like that. What I'm saying is what Jesus is demonstrating, following his, the, the, the Spirit descending upon him, what he's demonstrating is that the kingdom of God is at hand. And in the kingdom of God, the Spirit is in, indwells the people of God. There's this closeness. There's this intimacy, and as a result, there's this greater power. We see that believers have this great power over evil and darkness by the power of the Spirit, okay? That's a lot of information. Everybody doing good? This is breezing through. This is crazy. I give you all this information just to demonstrate the following. Three things. We are indwelt by the Spirit as an application of the gospel message or the good news that God is reestablishing his kingdom. We are indwelt by the Spirit as an application of the gospel 
or the good news that God is reestablishing his kingdom. It's not just some random add-on to our salvation. When we examine our salvation through a purely individually centered lens, of course it seems like a random add-on, but the indwelling of the Spirit is about much more, namely the uniting of God and his people, the children of his kingdom. And also we don't have to go somewhere to enter the presence of God. We don't have to go somewhere to enter the presence of God. Rather, he is with us. He is in us. You, you don't enter the presence of God only on Sunday morning when we're singing a song or you get this welling up of emotion in your heart in the midst of a song that, that really captures the feelings that you've been having lately. We walk with the presence of God. There's a special pouring out of God's presence when the people gather, but you're not, your access to God's presence isn't limited because you're indwelt by his presence. Number two, the indwelling of the Spirit in this new covenant age is different from the work of the Spirit prior to Christ's glorification. So again, we shouldn't read our experience back on those prior to the new covenant, like Saul or, or even the disciples before Pentecost. We shouldn't read our experience of what life with the Spirit looks like back on what the disciples experienced prior to Pentecost because they're living in an old covenant age and we're in a new covenant. So don't make that mistake. We'll talk about that a little more in a second. And finally, the indwelling of the Spirit confirms the faithfulness of God to fulfill his promises. In the same way that God promised thousands of years ago all of these things, even in the garden, promising that there will, be, there will one day come an a offspring of Eve that's going to crush the head of the serpent, God faithfully fulfills all of his promises. And again, God was created, man was created to, God was not created, by the way. Man was created to dwell in the presence of God. And that will certainly be so. And God is faithful to fulfill those promises. I want to briefly talk about some confusion that happens in the minds of many when we talk about the indwelling of the Spirit, namely this discussion of the baptism of the Spirit or the filling of the Spirit. Are terms like baptism of the Spirit and filling of the Spirit, are those things identical to the indwelling of the Spirit? Are they different? Is, is, are you indwelt by the Spirit, but then eventually you need to be baptized in the Spirit also and then be filled by the Spirit? What do all these terms mean? Uh, I want to start with baptism of the Spirit. Many in the more charismatic uh, denominations like Pentecostalism will uh, argue that there is this thing called the indwelling of the Spirit, yes, but then there's this different additional thing called the baptism of the Spirit. Biblically, there's this different thing that comes up called the baptism of the Spirit. And so essentially what they would say is that after your initial conversion and you're indwelt by the Spirit, at some later moment could be months or days, months, years, could be some later moment, you'll receive this abundant blessing, this abundant baptism of the Spirit where the Spirit takes over and specifically creates these gifts, one that they believe that is universal is you'll be able to speak in tongues. That's the baptism of the Spirit. If you've been baptized by the Spirit, you automatically speak in tongues. The less conservative, uh, theologically, but still charismatic folks won't say that you automatically have to speak in tongues, but that it'll be some evidence of some spiritual gift that you'll do once you receive the baptism of the Spirit. They base this view on a few selected texts. I just want to examine those right now. They should be in your notes. Acts 1, 4 through 5. While staying with them, we've already covered this, Jesus says, while staying with them, he, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait from the promise of the Spirit, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So here's what the charismatic brother or sister will say. Tim, you say that the indwelling of the Spirit uh, happens at regeneration, right? I'd say yes. When someone becomes a Christian, a true disciple of Jesus, they are indwelt by the Spirit. And they go, exactly. So what you're arguing is the disciples are not believers in Christ until Pentecost. You, see, you follow that logic? If I'm saying that the indwelling of the Spirit happens at regeneration, and I'm also saying that the indwelling of the Spirit happened with the disciples at Pentecost, what am I then saying? The disciples weren't Christians until Pentecost. Do I have to say that? That's what charismatic theologians will say. You have to say that you don't believe that the disciples are Christians, are actually disciples of Jesus until Pentecost because that's when they get regenerated and indwelt by the Spirit. 
Is that true? Are we forced to say that? I think you know my answer. No, we're not. We're not. It's equivocation. We can talk about that. <laughs> I mentioned a second ago that we don't want to read back our interpretation of our experience of the Spirit onto Old Covenant people from the Old Covenant. And I think this is where the charismatic believer kind of goes off course. I think that's what they're doing. With the entire narrative of scripture in view, we can clearly see the disciples exist in this point of transition. The disciples are right here. Here's the cross. Here's Pentecost. They're right there. They exist in this point of transition. John 7, 38 through 39 says, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. There's something different that happens in the lives of the disciples, and that's not something that we need to follow the example of, because they're, a certain, they're in a specific place in salvation's history that we are not. We're over here. So when we're regenerated, we get the Spirit. We're indwelt by the Spirit. Were they regenerate? Certainly so. They were certainly regenerate. Did they have the Spirit? No. What does, Je what does Jesus say? This he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So this point of transition was shortly after Jesus' glorification, just as Jesus promised. Why did it take a few days? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think it matters. I don't know. We, we're not told because it doesn't matter. What does matter is that the Spirit is this gift of abundant grace to those who believe in Christ. <clears throat> Wayne Grudem kind of sums it up really nicely in his systematic theology. He says, the disciples certainly did experience a baptism in the Holy Spirit after conversion on the day of Pentecost, but this happened because they were living at a unique point in history. And this event in their lives is therefore not a pattern that we are to seek to imitate. <clears throat> So then what, should, what do we mean when we say the baptism of the Spirit? What does that then mean? If it doesn't mean some after your conversion, uh, second experience of, of, the, of the Spirit, what does it then mean? I would argue that the baptism of the Spirit and the indwelling of the Spirit are describing the same thing. They're describing the same thing. I'd say the terms are interchangeable. But I would also say that in our cultural context, with all the baggage that gets thrown on baptism of the Spirit, I probably wouldn't use that term very much since it's so misunderstood. I would just use indwelling. When someone is regenerated, when someone comes to faith, they are indwelt by the Spirit. When someone comes to faith, they are baptized by the Spirit. They're the same. Okay? Now, the filling of the Spirit. I want to examine this term very briefly. This is a term you actually see a lot in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. But for our time, we're just going to talk about the New Testament. Ephesians 5, 18 through 21. It says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. <clears throat> so you see there, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. What does this mean? Why can Paul say, be filled with the Spirit, when we are already Filled with the Spirit. What is that, what's that supposed to mean? We covered this actually uh, a long time ago. We covered this in a, in a sermon on Ephesians, looking through this text, Ephesians 5, 15 through 21 was the, was the sermon, so you can go back and check that out. But I'll, I'll just pick up Paul's illustration and explain it like this. Imagine that you're at a party, okay? And I'm not talking about like an office Christmas party, though those can get a little crazy. Uh, depends on where you work. I'm talking about you are unregenerate, you're not a believer, and you're at a party, like a, like a party, okay? That's where you are. <clears throat> and as you move around the room and you talk to people, who is in control of your movements? Who is in control of what you choose to do? You are. You are. You're just walking around the room. You're like, this is a fun party. Look at that, I don't know, the vat of alcohol. You're just walking around the room and you're in control. So imagine you then start to drink. You start to be filled with alcohol. You, you know, you have one drink and you start to slur your words, yes, but you're still mostly in control. But as you continue to drink and drink and drink, what happens? What you're filling yourself with begins to overcome you. 
You begin to, you came to the party saying, well, I've got work in the morning, so I'm going to leave at a responsible hour, and oh, I'm not going to say a comment like that because that's extremely inappropriate. All of a sudden, you're like, I'm, I can do whatever I want. I can do whatever I want. Of course I'm going to say that. I don't care who, who hears what I say, okay? <clears throat> the alcohol has begun to take over because you filled yourself with this alcohol. It begins to take over. So I use this weird negative example to illustrate a positive point. What Paul is meaning to draw out is as you drink in the spirit, you become more and more filled and your desires begin to change. Your behavior begins to change by the power of the Holy Spirit. As you drink in God's word, the communion of the saints, listen what he says in Ephesians 5, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. As you drink this in, the Spirit changes you. You yield yourself to a, to a different power from your sinful flesh. The Spirit puts to death your desire, the desires of the flesh, puts to death your desires for evil, and aligns your desires with God. So I'd say that this filling of the Spirit, unlike the baptism of the Spirit, or the indwelling of the Spirit, is, it's not this one-time event. The filling of the Spirit, as the Bible describes it, is something that can continue, continually happen throughout the life of the believer multiple times over and over and over again. And all that is is a further yielding to the power of God. As you drink in the grace that God has given you and all the graces that he's given you through the church and through his word, through his sacraments, you are losing control so much for the, in, the sinful desires that, you, that your flesh desires, but instead you're being given over to the, ugh, the power of the Spirit. Does that make sense? So that's what the feeling of the Spirit is. Of the Spirit is. I want to close with some encouraging benefits of indwelling. And there are a ton of examples that I could give. It's ridiculous. I was up late, really late last night, first off, watching the Aggies. Uh, whoop, that was amazing. It was actually not amazing. That's not the way I want a game to win. I just want them to crush whoever they're playing and not spend five hours and seven overtimes beating a team, but I'm glad we, we pulled it out. But I stayed up late after that trying to think, what are the, what, which of these things am I going to choose? All of these benefits of the indwelling of the Spirit. And so I'm just going to give... A few that I chose at random. I'm just kidding. I thought these would be the most helpful to us, the most encouraging. So I just kind of want to take a poll, and you can raise your hand in your heart, like good Baptist. You don't have to raise your hand, okay? How many of you would say that you do not pray very often? How many of you would say that prayer is not a regular part of your life, if you're being honest? How many of you would say that you feel enslaved to a particular sin issue and you feel like you're never going to be free from it? And how many of you feel far from God, like there's this great distance between you and him? You just constantly feel far. He's disappointed in you. You just feel far from God. You haven't measured up to what he requires of you. You just feel distant. So I want to encourage us really quickly. <laughs> A lot of us <clears throat> neglect prayer. We don't pray very often. We don't read our Bibles very often because of two things. We feel like you're, you're not worthy in the presence of God, and you feel like you're not doing it right. You feel like you're not worthy. You feel like you're not doing it right. Listen to Romans eight twenty six through 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So just listen to this. As you pray, you know what we say, in Jesus' name, amen. The reason we're doing that is because we're saying we're shielded by Jesus' name, which is righteous and holy because I'm not. I'm not worthy. Jesus is. Jesus has this honor that allows him to walk into the throne room of God that I don't possess. In Jesus' name, may this be so. That's why we say that. We're covered in Jesus' righteousness. And as you pray, you're also, as Paul says, weak. Raise your hand if you feel weak in prayer. Amen. Because you are. Paul encourages us by telling us you're weak. You're weak. Paul doesn't say sometimes you'll have difficulty knowing what to pray for. Listen to what he says. We don't know what to pray for. We don't know. 
but the Spirit does. And the Spirit intercedes, stands before God on our half, pleading our case. He prays according to, as Paul says in Romans 8, 27, prays according to the will of God. So where your prayer fails, the Spirit conforms it perfectly to the will of God and prays on your behalf for what you don't know what to pray for. So when you come to pray, you maybe think, I'm not worthy, I'm not doing this right, because yes, you are not worthy, but Christ is. Though your prayers are not prayed correctly, the Spirit's prayers are. Therefore, the Spirit's indwelling emboldens us to pray. When your family member isn't a believer, when your friend is sick, when you feel overwhelmed, when you're anxious, the Spirit takes your weak prayers and presents them before God with a faith greater than Peter's or as great as and as perfect as Christ's. So just know, God doesn't listen to your prayers according to how much time you spend at church or how well you read your Bible or how much theology you know. Those are all very important things. Don't neglect those. He listens to your prayer insofar as you're his child and he loves you. Romans 8, 14 through 16. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. He cares for you. He loves you. When you pray, he, he knows you. Yes, you're not worthy. Yes, you don't do it right. But Christ and the Spirit take care of all of that for you. <clears throat> Number two, for those of us who... Uh, we feel enslaved to a particular sin issue we don't think we're ever going to be free from, know that the Spirit helps us and sanctifies us. Now what is sanctification? We're gonna, that's what we're talking about on January 6th of next year. We're talking about sanctification. Two weeks on sanctification. But as a summary, it's basically the Spirit's work to make you obedient to all that Christ has commanded. That's the Great Commission, to go therefore and baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. And the Spirit's work of making you obey all that he has commanded is called sanctification. <clears throat> so many of us recognize this call to obey all that Christ has commanded, but we're discouraged by the lack of obedience we see in our lives. And what we do is we forget that the power of our sanctification is not our own will or the strength of our perseverance, but rather the power of the Spirit that indwells us. So I, I invite you to just recall, how did you become a Christian? Think back to this moment or this season in your life. Where were your desires dramatically changed? Was, was any of that process the result of your own personal determination? You say, I'm gonna change for the good and this is the day I'm deciding to do it. Or did God provide that desire to change? So why then, when we struggle with sin, do we push away the, hope of the, the help of the Spirit in favor of our own devices? How many of us, when we struggle, begin to draw away from the community of believers given to us in the church? How many of us, when we struggle, we, we then feel condemned so we don't read our Bibles, we don't pray, we feel like we should be able to handle this all on our own, we won't confess our sins to one another because we fear the shame? We just put our nose to the grindstone and say, I'm gonna stop it, and this time I mean it. This time it's for real. I'm gonna stop sinning. I'll, I'll, I'll be free from this. Listen, you've been given a helper by this indwelling of the Spirit. John 16, 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, says Jesus. If I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Ephesians 5, 18 through 21 again says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And then he says kind of what that filling looks like. So I would just encourage you, if you're one who says, I, I'm never gonna be free from this sin, I would encourage you, drink in the gifts that God has given you. Drink in his word, drink in psalms and hymns, confess your sins to those around you, live in community with others. If you're like, I don't know what any of that looks like, come and talk to us. If you don't have any community, come and talk to Zach. If you're thinking that all of your community is gonna be found in an hour and a half to three hour meeting uh, on some day of the week called a community group, you, you, you don't understand what community is. We wanna help you find what that is. Indwelling of the Spirit reminds us that we are, that we have been granted freedom. 
in our adoption, we've been granted freedom. We no longer submit to this slave master, this, this master called sin and death, but now we've been given a new master who cares for us. And not only that, adopts us as his own. I want us to learn to trust in the power of the Spirit to change us. He's the one who sanctifies. You will find your sanctification frustratingly stunted if you are just drinking in this poison of, of self Reliance. Instead, drink in the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Have access to this presence that you've been given by grace through Christ. And finally, the last thing. I'm going a little long. Maybe. I don't know. The indwelling of the Spirit reminds us that we are ever close to God. So if you feel distant from God, just hear me out. You don't give God good days and bad days. Okay? You can look up a blog that we wrote called, Does God Have Feelings? Please read that. You, you don't give God good days and bad days. If you're a believer, God is not mad at you. If you're his son or his daughter, God is not mad at you. Some of you really need to hear that. You're thinking that all of the things that you're doing, if I just study more, if I just read my Bible more, if I do all of these things, then God will finally he'll get off my back. He won't be so mad at me. God is not mad at you. You're a beloved child. He delights in you if you are his own, if you are indwelt by the Spirit. Scripture also tells us that your body is a temple. Therefore, the Spirit dwells in you. So you don't have to first clean yourself up before you go before God, before you enter the presence of God. The Spirit cleanses you and purifies you. You've been cleansed by the blood of Christ. So recognize that God has chosen to dwell by His Spirit within you. And be encouraged by that. This is just a taste of what is to come in the end. Revelation 21, 3-4 says... I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain for the former things have passed away. I didn't put this on a sheet because I, that would have been, I didn't want to waste the paper. So Re Revelation 1, 21, 3 through 4. <laughs> All this to say, Big summary. Eventually, God is going to dwell with mankind. But in the meantime, God's spirit dwells within you. He dwells within his church and his believers to give us power over sin, to make us holy, to preserve us until Christ returns, and to bring glory to his name. There's a lot of stuff I did not cover that is the result, the outworking of the Holy Spirit. And so I want to kind of summarize some of those with a quote from a sermon from uh, Charles Spurgeon. Uh, my son, Haddon, is named after Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Uh, he's called the Prince of Preachers back in the late uh, 1800s. This is a sermon he had on the indwelling of the Spirit. This is really encouraging to my heart. You that are believers have the most forcible reasons to hold the Holy Spirit in the highest esteem. For what are you without him? What were you and what would you still have been if it had not been for his gracious work upon you? He quickened you or else you had not been in the living family of God today. He gave you understanding that you might know the truth or else you would have been as ignorant as the carnal world at this hour or the unbelieving world. It was he that awakened your conscience, convincing you of sin. It was he that gave you abhorrence of sin and led you to repent. It was he that taught you to believe and made you see that glorious person who is to be believed, even Jesus, the Son of God. The Spirit has worked in you your faith and love and hope and every grace. There is not a jewel upon the neck of your soul which he did not place there. For every virtue we possess and every victory won and every thought of holiness are his and his alone. Praise be to the Spirit of God. I'm going to invite Zach to come up here and we're going to take some questions about the indwelling of the spirit or about Aggie football. <laughs>